1: You're on Team Human, where solidarity beats isolation and autonomy triumphs over the automatic. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad at the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. Playing for Team Human today, Stanford communications scholar Fred Turner. The
0: biggest challenge is not forming networks of people that we know and love and already agree with. The biggest challenge is working with people, distributing resources with people who are very different than ourselves.
1: Fred will be helping us recover the countercultural roots of digital media, while also imploring us to look toward the mundane existing ways of staking our claim to authority over the world in which we live. This isn't rocket science, it's Team Human. These have been really exciting weeks for me and for Team Human. Uh, getting ready for the book launch, which is all the way in January, but it turns out that's right around the corner in terms of organizing events and figuring out tour dates and all sorts of stuff. And um, I've been really excited by the the positive feedback this, this book, this movement, this thing we're doing together has been getting so far, but it's also been really overwhelming. And I apologize to everyone whose emails I haven't been uh, getting back to or haven't been uh, uh, responding to with as much, uh, detail as I usually, as I usually give it. It's just, uh, it's an onslaught right now. And it's funny. One of the things I've been, I've been wondering about is, uh, how much time to give different sorts of things. A lot of the emails I'm getting, and I would say really as many as two or three emails a day include, These really detailed PDF files, that's those kind of big graphical files, of kind of master plans for our world. Uh, Whether it's a a set of eco-villages to be built in some remote region or a master plan for the economy that involves uh, uh, places for people to live and work together and have cooperative fields and they—they uh, they all come with sort of giant graphics. They're these sort of uh, SimCity-like top-down. Game plan, uh, uh, master builder visions—you know the kind of stuff that maybe would make you know Buckminster Fuller proud. That oh, here's a plan that he's thought about energy, and he's thought about money, and he's thought about mining, and he, he thought about the circulatory economy and the circulatory culture and permaculture and every And inevitably, though, they 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 involve almost like air droppings this new reality or clear cutting something or it, it, they look almost like like terraforming a new planet oh we're gonna get you know 40,000 acres in the desert and then build this thing that's gonna collect moisture from the air and grow uh, plankton and ozone and alpacas in a Perfectly harmonious biosphere of of circulating energies. And on the one hand, they're wonderful, beautiful, utopian, you know, 3D rendered depictions of a kind of Burning Man meets biosphere or, you know, Mars Dome meets Finhorn Garden. And for all their beauty, they still feel to me so much like, and I hate to get gender specific here, but sort of these sort of white male architectural engineering visions of here's how we can make it better, you know, like just dropping a, college campus in the middle of the woods or like the Saudi Arabian king wants to build some city of his out in the desert you know that these are are well-meaning ideas but I feel like they they're they're so sweeping they' they're, they're so much about getting a bunch of caterpillar tractors and clear cutting something or s- building on top of this. Uh, start-fresh, new Garden of Eden fantasy. And I'm not sure that's what's needed. Not for for all these real people in real places. I would almost rather see people going to an existing town and opening up one favor bank, one uh, way of participating in agriculture, one new school to help educate kids in a new way or to get kids literate in the old way or provide, uh, uh, doulas for poor pregnant people, uh, basic healthcare. They're, they're already, there's lots of buildings. There's lots of cleared land. I'm feeling like we can, uh, uh, rather than, than getting Credit for these giant, wonderful, sweeping, cooperative commons uh, interventions. Um, What about step by step, moment to moment improvement of how things are? I found certainly in the microcosm in my life, it's the little changes that work the best and the huge changes i make that lead to all sorts of uh, unforeseen consequences there's all of these little details that you kind of can't just pave over with the master plan. You know, it might be fine for making a giant movie or building a shopping mall, but I don't know if this, if more construction of big plans, um, is really the way to get ourselves into a a more uh, subtle, attuned, open minded, cooperative. Uh, approach towards making this world more sustainable i would rather not replace the world but just let's bring in the tweaks that we know how to make you know if we're having a problem right now it's from people thinking at too great a level of scale the scale of the British East India Trading Company coming in and taking over a continent. You know, the scale of of a Halliburton, the scale of Coke and Pepsi, the scale of Google. You know, let's not do everything local. I'm not saying that, but let's make the changes we want to make on a small scale first, and then let's see if other people want to model it. Rather than getting all the concrete ready to build another thing. Um, Let's look at the things we already have. Let's reuse. Let's modify. Let's adapt the world that we're in to our better intentions rather than feeling like we got to start the whole thing over. It's too late to start over. We're growing up now. Let's look at the choices we've made and see if we can make some better ones. I gave a talk at the Institute for the Future last month in Palo Alto, California. And one of the best reasons to go out there is actually to interact with folks like our guest today, Fred Turner, a Stanford professor of communication, who's done a whole lot of research into the countercultural, even psychedelic roots of cyberculture. He did an extended biography of Stuart Brand called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. And he's even gone further back into the history of all this stuff, looking at uh, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson uh, with his book, The Democratic Surround, Multimedia and American Liberalism from World War II to the Psychedelic 60s. Which uh, maybe sounds a little bit more difficult than it is. It's really a, a, a very friendly book that uh, explores and exposes really uh, the roots of our uh, touchscreen society, how, uh, well, as I see it,'re uh, we're, we're given lots of choices over things that really all lead to the same outcome, kind of that that feeling when you go down the the grocery store shelves and, you see 300 different uh, laundry detergent, detergent solutions, and they're all really the same chemical coming from two different companies. But it feels as if, oh, this is a democracy. We have all this choice. Uh, he really looked at... Uh, the really the the founding of this culture of choice in which we live, and its its origins as something that was meant as really an alternative to fascism, where everything is chosen for you, that American the American democratic soul could really be uh, expressed in uh, uh, or or analogized, if nothing better, through the. Uh, a culture of choice of different buttons and screens and and ways to pick different stuff. If anything, we've gone into the uh, extreme end of that now. And um, there's so much choice, it's almost uh, uh, stultifying. But uh, it's really delightful and and always very grounding uh, to get to spend some time with Fred. And I'm glad I'm getting to share that with you now. Start with, I, and this is a really personal inquiry, but sure. it's fine and it's human. I, I walk from a very far part of the campus mm-hmm. to here, and as I'm walking, I'm 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 kind of welling up with various emotions, partly because of the architecture mm. and their. Young people here are all probably smarter than I was when I, I got into the Princeton back when it was a lot easier. I think <laughs> you know what I mean. The good SATs, but you know, yeah. I mean, and I'm looking around at that and 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 the beautiful buildings. I'm reminded of when I was at Princeton mm-hmm. and looking at the beautiful there. It was the beautiful Gothic architecture yep. and the courtyards. And I'm I'm I don't know. Am I just being? convinced by the elite rulers of you know western society that these are the values that we should be that we should be be espousing in other words it feels like uh, on a certain level i mean and and you've been here you get uh, i'm sure you get used to it but it's a little bit like mount olympus in its beauty it's a perfect beautiful the smells the the Mm -hmm. it's it's and to just be here to imagine myself i could just be here Mm -hmm. be teaching these people doing Mm -hmm. my research Mm -hmm. you're sitting here in a communications room you got jeremy balenson in the next room doing the most advanced work (laughs) in second life and and you know in his it's Uh so exciting what's going on and uh what's the what's the role of where where does this fit now in our society, do you know mm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. This a, an institution like this.
0: Well, let's break it down a little bit. First off, I think very often um, concentrations of wealth and power lead to concentrations of beauty. You know, the Vatican is my favorite example of this. Mm. The Vatican, um, you know, the, the Catholic Church is a, a large, complex institution that has had many different kinds of effects on the world. But the Sistine Chapel is still beautiful, and and it's possible because the same institution that did so many of the things that the Catholic Church has done, also concentrated the wealth that could pay the painter, that could make it happen. But it's
1: not just genuinely beautiful. In other words, it's it's also, I don't mean on the bad side, it's also um, uh, spiritually and humanistically valid on a certain level, you know? And,
0: and it's also about the power of the church, and it's meant to, meant to help you feel the power of the church in your body. You know, when I, when I came to Stanford, um, I, I was completely mystified why they hired me. I'm still a little mystified, <laughs> very grateful, but mystified. And, and I remember when I drove up Palm Drive, which is the main drive onto campus, it's a mile long um, with very carefully matched palm trees all the way along. Mm. And it's very beautiful. And, and my mom, I know the first time I took her there, she said, Oh, it's so beautiful here. Well, that's a power statement. A mile of palm trees is a power statement. And when you drive up onto Palm Drive, it is utterly beautiful, but it's also very much about power. Remember, this university was built at the end of the 19th century in the middle of nowhere, 3,000 miles from the East Coast, you know, by a family that had tapped, you know, that had, had tapped the golden spike to, to join, the, join the country in the railroad. This, this is the end of the line. This is the utter beyond the beyond when it's built. But it's built to look like beautiful Rome. It's, it's built with colonnades. It's built with you it know, is, Italian, and it Italian works. tiles. The
1: perspectives work. They oh, gorgeous, psychologically yeah. on you. I mean, I remember when I would walk around Princeton and see there was this thing called Blair Arch, mm-hmm. this giant arch with these steps going up. And you look, and I didn't know what it was doing to me, but I could mm-hmm. feel it. I could regard it and go, oh, it's mm-hmm. it, 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 it creates a sensation of awe. But what I do want to
0: say is that once you're sort of on the campus, yes, it's, it's always beautiful, but there's, that's also a risk. People talk about the Stanford bubble. And I, I don't know if you noticed that right at the edge of campus, we have um, a whole line of run-down um, camping trailers that people are living in. We have cars that people are living in at the edge of our campus on El Camino Real. And, and you know, who are those people? Well, it's a great question. Um, <laughs> They're not know, the
1: workers for this school.
0: No, not for this school, but yeah. they do they are workers here. Mm. Um, I actually just did a, a book with a photographer named Mary Beth Meehan on the working class in Silicon Valley. Mm. And it's coming out in France in about eight weeks and hopefully in the US after that. And you know, she went and talked with a lot of these folks. They're employed. They're you know, they're security guards at Facebook, they're nurses, they're people with real jobs. Mountain View, my town, the home of Google, has a whole street that is nothing but people living in their cars. Oh. Um, and and that's also here. So the the beauty that is here, the bubble that is here, has also produced some of the inequality um, that makes people live in their
1: cars at the edge of the bubble. And what about the the intellectually though? And you know, then you could say, okay, uh, part of any of us, looks at the real world and what's going on and how mm-hmm. hard it is, mm-hmm. would think. If I can get in a bubble, whether it's a Stanford bubble or even a nice eco-village out in New Hampshire somewhere, you know, or let me go live at Esalen, I'll do Buddhist overtone chanting for the rest. Beautiful. I mean, and if you can justify it that, well, at least I'm doing overtone chanting that is changing the resonance of the planet Mm -hmm. and necessary, then I get to go do it, right? Right. Or I'm doing biodynamic farming somewhere and I'm sharing the things I'm learning online, so... Right, Yay. right, right.
0: When I first got here, I thought a lot about Cruella de Vil in the movie 101 Dalmatians. And you know, she lives in a beautiful house. And when I first got here and I was thinking about all the different kinds of people in the world and um, the inequality in this region, um, people would ask me what it was like to work here in these, this incredibly beautiful space. And I'd say, well, you know, it's it's like living in Cruella de Vil's mansion. It's absolutely beautiful as long as you don't mind the screaming of the puppies. Mm. And this, the, you know, if you drive off campus, you can see the puppies, and it's not—it's not such a great scene, you know. But that said, how do we think about it? Um, sometimes I feel like I'm a giraffe on a wildlife preserve, but I'm glad because it's good to have a place to be a giraffe. Some parts of my life are so much easier here, and I can think about things that are hard to think about elsewhere. I think the challenge for someone in that position is to remember that that you know we're being subsidized we're being given these phenomenal lives, we've got to try to be useful in return. You know, we, We've got to try right. to be useful. You know, I see my job, my actual day-to-day job, as trying to um, figure out, with all the time that I have, how it is that we got into the cultural condition that we're in right now, um, on behalf of people who don't have time to do that figuring, mm-hmm. and to write books, and give classes, and do videos, so that people who don't have the time to do that figuring and aren't living in these lush surroundings... Can you know? Can, can can learn and can see where they w- how they got to
1: where they are in, in their life and in their, their historical time. So then, what you've been using the resources to do has been, as at least as I understand your work so far, is to help understand to understand through media and communications, or mm-hmm. how media and communications and our thoughts about that and our development mm-hmm. have contributed to our current sense of uh, alienation from ourselves and mm-hmm. one another.
0: Yeah, I think that's part of it. Um, you know, I, I try to be a little bit more Catholic, and I try to withhold judgment when I'm doing the work. So, you know, I think of myself as somebody who studies American cultural history after World War II. And, you know, when I started started looking at cultural history as a field... Um, Media, media media might have been taken seriously as a system of representations, but media technology wasn't really part of the story. And I still go to history conferences sometimes and and I ask particularly older historians what the coolest thing about the twentieth century was in their mind. And they get all kind of misty-eyed and they say,
1: <gasps> Roosevelt.
0: And and it's and and it and, and mm. it, where's movies? Where where's TV? And those are the kinds of things that I've been trying to kind of nip back into the story.
1: You know, I would lo- probably have said the Marx brothers. Well, right, sure, exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, so, so
0: the last two books I've done are, 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 are a matched pair, and mm-hmm. they're designed to trace our faith in decentralized communication and where it came from, how we thought the decentralizing communication systems in the 40s and 50s would free us from fascism, which looked to us to be a top-down, mass-mediated, one-to-many way of governing and a one-to-many way of making media, and how those ideas fed into the internet and how the internet in turn became an emblem of a kind of idealized direct democracy that in fact we don't have. And
1: that's right. that's the story that I've been telling you know, for for a while. And there's two main threads. Okay. In that, which is interesting, the one is the the, the Gregory Bateson, Margaret Mead, yep. cybernetics were, and the other was the countercultural yep. Stuart Brand one. And they're both so interesting to me because where where and I I, I don't want to assume too much knowledge because some people won't know <laughs> who we're talking about. But Go but on. the the Growing up, just as I did, whoever uh-huh. I am, I grew up feeling like Stuart Brand and the Merry Pranksters and the psychedelic 60s and all. that those are the good guys. Mm-hmm. And the Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson working with the government in World War II and mm-hmm. that. They're kind of the bad guys, mm-hmm. you know. And I read your book. The first time I read your books, because I'm coming at them that way. Mm-hmm. I see your book on Stuart Brand, which is called, um, what's Counter- it called? Counterculture to Cyberculture. Counterculture to Cyberculture. And I went, wow, this is, you're treating um, um, Stuart Brand as this great hero and all that stuff. And I read the, the, the one on the surround. Uh uh-huh, And it's like look, yeah. look at these bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, know, you know, manipulating, you know, creating the surround. They think the whole world's gonna be screens and they're gonna create the illusion of choice and we can uh-huh. click on things and we got how we got Facebook. Then I read them again and then in, as a more mature person now as uh-huh. a professor, and I'm looking at Bateson and Mead and saying, oh, no, they're kind of heroes here. Totally they're, heroes. They're, they hate fascism. They're mm-hmm. trying to really demonstrate to the world that you should have agency, that Complete you should choice. have autonomy. And then you, I'm looking at Barlow, and you're like, well, wait a minute. You're kind of critical of this, you know, that this counter... So... That's the beauty of your stuff is that you do write neutrally so that whenever I'm coming into it with, yeah. I really do get, my books are like these polemics. I just like, God right, damn right, these right. people. Right, Google's right. got to stop you. Um, so that's a, that's, that's a great talent that you can do that. Well, right back at
0: you on The Voice. I mean, when I, I was a journalist for 10 years before I did this job and- I worked very hard at that time in my career to, to to have a voice on the page that was my own and a perspective, and I I do that now too. I, I you know the eighth chapter, the final chapter of the of the brand book is quite critical, <laughs> uh, right. and, the, and the introduction to the to the democratic surround talks about Bates and Amede as, as as heroes, but but it's been very interesting to try to figure out the value of neutrality in work. You know, I want to be thoughtful and slow, and I want to be willing to see things as different than the way that I was told that they were, you know, so the counterculture book, I was always told that the counterculture was this great break from a sort of lockdown, Cold War, black and white, constrained right. world, you know, what scholars call the culture of containment. Um, imagine my surprise when I was talking to Stuart Brand and the people around him, and, and uh, you know, I see their bookshelves, they're reading Margaret Mead, you know, Brand was there when Gregory Bateson died in the San Francisco Zen Center, He's reading Eric Frome. You know, they're they're reading uh, Karen Horney. They're reading they're reading the theorists of the forties, and so that's how I found my way into the Democratic Surround as a project. Was that I just followed all the books that the people I'd been studying in the sixties were reading, and suddenly I spot this forties that is much more radical, much more open um, than we ever knew. You know, I was always told that there was no robust anti racist movement in America until the civil rights movement. That's sort of just what I always thought. Well, no. You know, uh, in 19 what was it, 1940, 41, as we were getting ready to fight the Nazis, you know, Americans realized that hey, wait a minute, we've got a race problem here, and so they, you know, um, Ruth Benedict, an anthropologist, wrote an amazing book called Race Science and Politics, in which she just destroyed Nazi race theory and American race theory. 1950, there's a wonderful book called The Open Self um, by Charles Morris, who's a philosopher at the University of Chicago. The Open Self advocates for a world in America of radical sexual preference diversity. It was nearly a bestseller. No Mm. one remembers that stuff. No one remembers that stuff. They remember McCarthy. They remember the closet. We don't remember that there have been people struggling for an egalitarian, open, flexible, whole person-centered world for
1: decades. Even know, in the places that we didn't think they were there, And it's interesting, and I think the the left in particular, or the progressives, w- whatever it is that I would consider myself, we we in particular like to think of the past as worse than now. You know, well, it, it justifies our ambitions. Right. So I would,
0: I would, for what it's worth, I would include myself on the left very strongly. You know, my first book is a book about the Vietnam War. I grew up during the Vietnam War. Um, I've spent you know several years talking with traumatized combat vets. Um, you know, Vietnam is where I. Cut my political teeth. Mm. It's how I think about it. In any case, and so I, I, I would, I would put myself firmly on the left. All right. That said, in some ways, we've been trapped on the left. I think in celebrating um, the projection of authentic individualism out into the world as an alternative to what we imagined was top-down fascism. There's a kind of anti-hierarchical, pro-whole human individualism that has animated the left for a long time that I think is something we've got to start looking at and perhaps doing away with. I I like to go back to the 60s and think about the new left a lot. The new left did politics to change politics. They still believed in institutions. They didn't only want us to be whole people. I contrast them with the commune folks who I've spent so much time studying. The commune folks that I've studied what they wanted to do was eschew politics entirely, just get rid of it, and build their communities around a shared mindset, shared consciousness. And they were quite willing to use technologies like LSD or geodesic domes or even cars to, to transform their minds. And, and And they hoped that once their heads were together, they could all just live better together.
1: It didn't work out very well. Those communes were among the most racist, sexist places I've ever looked I at. I know. And everyone, I've, I, I'm sure there's ones that are functioning now, you know, or listeners, but but everything I know, even the ones I saw in my time in the in the seventies yeah. and eighties, it's the the girls are cleaning the pot on the you, you know while the guys are out playing frisbee or yep. working. Their girls are working in right, the kitchen right, right, and there's right, no black right. people. Well, right, and one of the so. deepest
0: lessons of the communes that, that I think the left has in other ways failed to learn is that. When you take away bureaucracy, when you take away rules, when you take away the rule of law and try to substitute for that shared consciousness or the projection of individual authenticity or an identity, what you do is you actually re-empower cultural norms. You actually re-empower the invisible shared understandings, that, the stereotypes that people carry around with them all the time, and they become the means by which you start to organize. So on these communes, no one would ever say, I'm sorry, you know, people of color aren't allowed here. What they would say and i've heard them say is you know i mean yeah we would have been okay with black people you know they just weren't cool and that is a kind of cultural redlining it's not official it's not done by law whereas if you redline in law that's something you can challenge you can vote you can march if it's in law that's a rule that applies to everybody you can negotiate that you can fight for that now will it take a generation or two absolutely but it's it's fightable when things are cultural like that, when things are just like not cool, and it's ruled by cool, and charismatic leaders are in charge, there's very little you can do to to overturn them.
1: And and one one aspect of it though is is also this this idea of neutrality. Mm. You know that, that person can be somehow neutral. I mean, I'm wondering where that came from. I'm I'm. Th- I mean, I remember I was taught that the um, American newspapers. And television stations sought to be neutral once they became national. Mm-hmm. And they had national brands that had to be mm-hmm. able to appeal to both sides. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, a newspaper couldn't be left or right. It had to kind of be mm-hmm.
0: generic. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. You know, I don't think of it quite that way. I think of it as sort of inside-outside, right? I, th- I think of it as when people moved to cities, they began to develop public faces and home faces you know, when you had to be among strangers, you couldn't presume that you were like them. It wasn't like being in a village where you could be presumed to have the same religion or the same beliefs or the same family history and you, where you could presume that people would know that. And so, you know, you, you begin to cultivate kind of external signifiers or external non-signifiers. You know, you think of all the businessmen who go to work wearing the same blue, gray, or black suit. If you shop for men's clothes lately, you know that the range of colors available to men is still fairly limited. You know, th- those are public-facing things. and I think the, the, I think there are two words that I want to, I want to use about this kind of neutrality, and they are civic and public. Let's start with public first. I think it's important that people leave their houses and have a sense that they are entering a shared space that is public, where they may have to place limits on their own selves and their own actions and their own expressions, just as they would expect those around them to place limits on their actions and their expressions, so that we can do things together even when we don't agree. Uh, the biggest challenge is not forming networks of people that we know and love and already agree with. The biggest challenge is working with people, distributing resources with people who are very different than ourselves. Yeah, that's the, you and
1: know, and the slogan of the show is find the others. Exactly. And the joke of it is like, no, not the other people like you, the, the others. others. Right. <laughs> and,
0: and that's the civic impulse. That's exactly what I mean by the civic. The civic impulse is different than the personal impulse. It's different than the interpersonal impulse. It's different than falling in love. You know, being civic with another person is collaborating with them toward what you both understand to be the greater good, despite your very different places of origin. You know, I think about universal humanism in the mid-century a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was raised intellectually in an academic environment that that was very busy critiquing universal humanism as a tool of colonialism, as a tool of oppression, Mm -hmm. because it was insisting, universal humanism was, that people were somehow all alike. And that erased difference and um, you know, reified oppression, and those things are absolutely true. But universal humanism also provided the intellectual ground on which the civil rights movement could stand. Universal humanism made it possible for people who are marching for civil rights, people of color, to carry signs that said, I am a man. Hmm. I am a man, and I deserve to be treated equally. You say everyone has the same rights. You say we're all the same, treat me that way. And, so it's, and this is the, this is the, the, the sort of two-sidedness of, of the public civic impulse I'm talking about. It can be oppressive, but it's also precisely the way that you claim rights that can be put into legislation, that can be put into institutions, and that guarantee that despite difference, we
1: get treated well. Right, that I'm not two-thirds of a man. I'm not, I'm not two-thirds would. of a man. Or,
0: or, you know, it's not like some online social networks where, you know, I'm sorry, like the way you talk,
1: it's just not really cool.
0: You know, and it turns out that everybody who's not really cool is a person of color or a man or a woman or a whatever.
1: Well, right. But the the, the values that are embedded in and you've got a couple of new articles on that on one on Facebook and one on Twitter, but but the, the, the values that are embedded in our social networks are their tweak on what it means to be a human is very particular.
0: Yeah. So I I think the values that are embedded in our social networks, if by, by our networks we mean the actual technologies, the devices, and the companies who run them, are the values of American engineering. An American engineering culture is a very specific subculture in our world. We don't even tend to think of it that way. We tend to think of subculture as being, you know, punks or something. No, engineering is a is a dominant subculture in our society. Engineers are trained very rigorously um, to see the world, the, the physical world, as a series of problems that can be solved through infrastructural innovation.
1: Right, and their value they, they they're looking at the utilitarian value Absolutely. in every situation.
0: Well, or, or utilitarian and instrumental, not necessarily huh. utilitarian, but instrumental. You know, m- m- not all engineers are like this, but 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 many tend to to see the world um, as something that's best acted on um, instrumentally. You, you you do something to change something. It's not seen as an ne- as a constant negotiation. And in fact, many of the engineers that I know in computer science, not all, but many, struggle with complex interpersonal relations. One of the reasons they really like computers is that they're very logical. They're very clean. Engineering has a Spock problem. And, and that's, a, that's a challenge, right? The other thing about engineering, right, is that engineers, um, I think, are, are, are raised with what I've described in other contexts as an ethical warrant. You know, they have to make stuff that works. And that's the, that's the fundamental check. Does it work? Do, not does it work for whom, not does it work with whom, but does it work? Once it works, then, you know, it's not my responsibility where the bombs come down, says Werner von Braun. You that know? was what,
1: when I got in a debate with some of the folks at IBM Watson. right. I was, I was saying, well, you know, they, they were talking about this artificial intelligence they're building, and I was asking them about, well, how are they thinking about the ethics around it? And right. they said, well, you know, the, 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 eth- the ethical choices about how the technology is used is up to the, the client who's using it. Right. And I'm like, well, how did that work with punch cards back in Nazi Germany? Right. Did you not learn that lesson yet? Yeah, there's a kind of
0: institutional denial that's, that's 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 astonishing. It exists in different industries to different degrees. You know, it's most obvious in say the weapons industry. You know, I make guns. I don't kill people. People kill people with my guns. You know, or tobacco. Tobacco is the you know, maybe the most extreme example of this this phenomenon. I've often wanted to do a book about how people. <laughs> um, Manage their sense of themselves when they work in industries that do enormous damage, and you know that's something that's hitting the computing world now. But you can see that you know people, companies like Facebook and their leaders are sort of baffled when they get told they're media companies. Like, no, we're, we're an engineering company. We, we build the system. The system clearly works. Look how many millions of people use it. Look how much money we're bringing in. It's working fine.
1: Something else you've been writing about recently. There's so much I want anything. to talk about. But, <laughs> it's but such
0: a treat to have you here.
1: Let's go back to. I talk to you all the
0: time in my head. It's just through your books. It's uh, like, you know,
1: it's like. Let's go back to to counterculture to cyberculture. Sure. Um, which was the the first book of yours I I read? It's right in the middle there. Nineteen ninety nine. I I got to do this. Uh, for uh, or I got to do a talk for Richard Metzger. He had this thing called mm. disinfo, disinformation. Oh god, yes. They did a thing called oh, Disinfocon yes. in New York. Oh, this was like is way back. Genesis yeah. Peoridge, Robert Anton Wilson, mm-hmm. Grant Morrison, oh, a lot of white guys apparently. And well, Penny Arcade. I mean, there was mm-hmm. a couple, but um, and I got to do the opening talk, and I was telling them, hey, everybody, the counterculture won. Mm. And you have to learn to accept. This victory, mm-hmm. accept it, because everybody, all the ad people, all the crowd, everyone wants to be cool, and you know what that means. Hmm. They're all coming to you, and you're like, "Oh no, you can't have it because you're not good enough." <laughs> said, yeah, but now you got to share it. What does it actually mean? Mm-hmm. What do they want? Um, the counterculture's migration into cyberculture, mm-hmm. which was partly because Stuart Brand went to that meeting of the whatever the hackers
0: conference. He hosted it, yeah, hosted it and said.
1: Yeah. Come on in, the water's fine. Computers mm-hmm. aren't just for the evil Northrop Grumman nerd people. right. It's for us too. Mm-hmm. And everybody came in and we we kind of celebrated it as mm-hmm. this new electrocholate acid mm-hmm. test, rave connected Gaian mm-hmm. whole mind. was it did we make a, some crucial error in was there where is there something yeah. we, we, we we
0: made we made a series of errors and we made some of them earlier. You know, um, the thing about Stuart Brand, or a thing about Stuart Brand, is that much of what we take to be um, ideas that he cooked up in the 60s are in fact ideas that he ported from the 40s. And the fantasy that engineering can substitute for politics is a fantasy that was is really a cybernetic fantasy. You know, so Norbert Wiener, writing in 1950 or so, writes The Human Use of Human Beings, and you know, in that he describes two alternative political worlds. One is a hierarchical world, he calls it the ant world, top-down people are dehumanized they're alienated they're forced to live solely in roles they march around the alternative that he suggests is a cybernetic world a cybernetic paradise in which we are like information systems we're constantly seeking feedback and adjusting ourselves accordingly and we're all watched over by affectionate cybernetic machinery that vision and the fantasy that engineering can substitute for politics is a fantasy that was is really a cybernetic fantasy. You know, so Norbert Wiener, writing in 1950 or so, writes The Human Use of Human Beings. And Norbert Wiener's cybernetic vision comes to life in 1967 in Haight-Ashbury when Richard Brautigan writes and circulates a poem called All Watched Over by Machines of Loving Grace. I, I dream, I, it can't happen fast enough, of a cybernetic meadow. He goes on from there. And And this is
1: before computers, really. It was before computers computers.
0: hit in any real substantial way. Computers are still large-scale. They're still very large. They're room-sized. Big IBM punch-cardy things. IBM punch-cardy things. They're being used by the military to run the Vietnam War. So uh, in
1: Haight-Ashbury, the hippie people wearing buckskin and smoking pot, there's this idea that We're going to get computers It's going to help us and not... Oh,
0: absolutely. There's an idea that comes from cybernetics into the counterculture, and Stuart Brand is one of the central vehicles for this, as is Gregory Bateson, that the world is an interconnected system. And you can see that mystically as a system of energy or a system of vibes... Or you can see it, as scientists do, as a system of consciousness or of information exchange.
1: This is like Dawa physics, dancing wooly masters sort Absolutely. of stuff. Absolutely,
0: that's exactly what it is. All of that comes out of cybernetics. It, that's all a kind of popular bastardization of, of
1: Norbert Wiener's vision from the 50s. Because people saw there's there's the, the, the I Ching, there's Mm -hmm. Buddhism, Mm -hmm. and now there's sort of math and science and quantum and And look, it's all coming together! It's all coming together! And now we can
0: come together around it. We can get our heads together, finally. We don't need this politics that seems to have taken us to atom bombs and the Vietnam War and created Dr. Strangelove. Now, finally, we can be our whole selves all the time. Left and right
1: brain, man and woman, sun and moon, nature and and artificial.
0: It's all one. It's all one. It's all one. And, and, you know, I still shower with Dr. Bronner's soap. Uh, And if you've used your Dr. Bronner's lately, you know that it says all one all around the bottle. Yeah. And uh, I used to, when I was writing the counterculture book, I used to say, oh, people would ask me what I'm doing. And I said, well, I try to explain the label on Dr. Bronner's. I know. That's What's what that whenever
1: I get worried about my own writing is when it looks too much like a Dr. <laughs> Bronner's bottle. I'm like, okay, I've got to pull yeah, it back a little oh bit. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> but,
0: but that's why computers begin to look appealing to some subset of, of the counterculture. Computers look like the tools that model and make accessible and make actionable this deeper mystical truth that the, the whole world, natural, mechanical, human, non-human, is nothing but um, a system, a pattern. Uh, you know, you Norbert know, Wiener talked about it as, you know, we are patterns of information in a, in, in a river in the river's flow of time. You know, that's a mystical vision embedded in the birth of network computing. Mm-hmm. And it's one that crosses back and forth between the counterculture and the technical world. And absolutely, Richard Broudigan celebrated that, Stuart Brand celebrated that.
1: Gregory Bateson celebrated Gregory it.
0: Bateson was all about that. But here's the rub. We talk about the early 80s as a time when people from the counterculture sort of ushered in a, a new way of understanding computing, and that did happen. But I think what we forget is that for, the, for people in the counterculture in the early 80s, their counterculture had failed. Most of the communes, you know, remember largest commune movement of all time between 66 and 73, as many as a million Americans had back to the land, a million Americans. But by 73, virtually all of the communes have died and the ones that haven't are either very religious or run by authoritarian leaders of one kind or another. By the early 80s, people like Stuart Brand and Ken Kesey are on the outs. They were the heroes of what was supposed to be a countercultural revolution, a complete transformation of American society. Well, Ronald Reagan had by that time declared mourning in America.
1: Right. And and I remember at the end of Hunter S. Thompson's um, Fear and Loathing in, La- in Las Vegas, he wrote this really mean thing about Timothy Leary. Hmm. You remember there's this paragraph Mm-mm. where he's saying, you know, he sold us all the kids up the river, you know, with this false right. ideal. Right. Well, it's a false ideal that's deeply, deeply, deeply
0: embedded in in, Americans, in America's central military industrial complex. I mean, you, you know, you could have asked military researchers how they were going to win the Vietnam War. Well, we were going to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese through our amazing technology. Oh, don't even get me started. Um, My point is that in the early 80s, you had a whole generation of former commune folks here in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, who needed jobs. And they got jobs in the computer industry. And when they got jobs in the computer industry, they brought with them the political, social, mystical ideals that animated their social lives and they began to read those into computers.
1: So that even though we lost in the 60s, now right. we, it's going to come.
0: Right. The communes, well, they, they, they failed. But even
1: Timothy said used to say that. Well, oh, LSD LSD was too hard, but computers are going to be the new LSD.
0: Yeah, actually, he got that from Stuart Brand, who said the computers are, oh. are the new LSD. Yeah, yeah. They there was something called the Cyberthon, and I think it was 1990, where they worked together even. But in the early 80s, the hope that computers were tools of personal transformation, that they were personal tools, personal technology. Personal PCs. PCs. That's straight out of the counterculture. That's straight out of the hope that things, smaller technologies like LSD or stereos will transform your mind and allow you to live benevolently with others.
1: Right, put on your headphones, plug in, Absolutely. turn on virtual and whatever.
0: Communities, virtual communities, yeah. another another Bay Area ph- phenomenon. In the 1980s, computers could be connected through dial-up modems. They didn't have pictures yet. It was just text. But you could talk to other people through your computer. Well, for the, the hippies of the Bay Area who had been on communes, that was the new way to share consciousness. Right. Suddenly, it looked like the high-tech world had, in fact, provided, not through LSD or through automobiles, but through computers.
1: Right, and then we retrofitted a philosophy around that that, oh, well, human beings are the neural net. Exactly. We are the, the global right. brain.
0: Right, right, right. Well, that philosophy, For Gaia. Well, th- so, so Gaia, too, and that philosophy, too, is, is deeply rooted in the systems theories of the mid-century. Mm-hmm. This idea that, 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 that we are a brain and that our brain can be represented by and sustained by digital networks... You know, um, gosh, I, I read a book. What was it published? Maybe 1951 or two, called Giant Brains, and it was a popular account that made exactly that case and had pictures. It was wild.
1: So, but a systems theory is still valid. I mean, isn't it? I mean, I just talked to sense? you know. I, well, I just talked to Nora Bateson, and mm-hmm. and, and, and uh, uh, Marilyn Emery mm-hmm. has been on the show, and that that there's. That there's more to the connections between people in some ways than in the actual people. That, that the, the ways we all interact and the way systems interact is, is as important as whatever's happening inside the systems themselves. So, so I think that's
0: a good principle to start with. But um, over my working life, I've become a radical contextualist. and um, I've, I've really come to distrust any theory that seems to be applicable outside time and space. This is sort of universally true. You know, people ask me what I think about mm. utopia, right? And I, I think that any total system is likely to fail. I think that, you know, I don't want to live in a utopia, but I want to be hopeful. And hope is the thing that's, that's not, that's not um, dominating. And It's the same way with systems theory. There are times when systems theories make a ton of sense. Family therapy. You know, many of Bateson's ideas inform family systems therapy, the idea that we should have a systemic understanding of mental health and mental illness. Terrific. Um, they're Cities about- or cities. Econ- economics. Right, but the, the questions you might ask about how systems work in cities might be a little different than the questions you might ask about how systems work in families. What, what I want to let go hmm. of is... The mystical fantasy that animated in some ways Norbert Wiener and sometimes Gregory Bateson the less than others. And
1: Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking. Right. for that matter.
0: right this idea that we are all interconnected information systems. there's a shift there. you know it's a little bit like Buddhism on computers. you know suddenly, you know we are all patterns, great. that's very Buddhist and there's a great emptiness and emptiness is form and form is emptiness and I'm right there with you. But that doesn't mean that any of those things can or should be computed or that the devices that do computation using electronic media, are actually the best models of that world.
1: Right. They're just a
0: tool. They're just a tool. And and systems are are powerful approaches. But like to give you a classic example from, from where Gregory Bateson's systems theory went wrong, Gregory Bateson um, in Family Therapy talked about the um, talked about schismogenesis, which was his account of where schizophrenia comes from. It's a, essentially a systems theory of schizophrenia. And it's, a, it's a system, by virtue of blaming the rise of schizophrenia in young people on the members of the family system around them, he did, a, he did families a great harm. Mothers and fathers believed that they were somehow, through their choices in parenting, responsible for the terrible madness that afflicted their children. Well, um, these days we know better. You know, chemistry matters. And chemistry is not a systems phenomenon. It's just chemistry. And that's, that's my point about totalizing systems. You know, sometimes it's just chemistry. And you have to be open to that possibility just as you're open to the possibility that interaction and relation are potentially more important than the, the, the ground state of any of the things that are interacting or relating.
1: You know, we're so driven to somehow believe or feel that there's just one thing going on, you know, <laughs> that, that, you know what I mean? That it's yeah. all is one, it, that right. as if we can't all get along unless we somehow accept our, right. you know.
0: So my, I actually have a different read on this. And I, I think humans are a little bit cursed by their need to be in intimate interpersonal relations with small groups. Because we're living at a time where we've built these massive global systems for connecting people across space and time in a deeply cosmopolitan way. And if you're a tribalist, if you're oriented toward your family and your tribe, that makes living in a cosmopolis pretty challenging. I think we've gotten very, very good at at identifying and speaking on behalf of our tribes. and And we identify our tribes on very basic biological conditions. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm straight, I'm not. I'm all in favor of personal identification and speaking personal truth. But I'm also in favor of the civic and the public. And the challenge is to speak your truth in a way that invites someone else to speak theirs, when it's different than yours, to hear it respectfully, and to see where the common ground is. And that's the stuff that we've lost the habit of. And that's the stuff that universal humanism was designed to promote. And I'm very aware that I'm a tall, old, white man. And that you know, universal humanism was promulgated by my kind and to the benefit of my kind. And that, that's an embarrassing and horrible truth. But it's also the lever by which people who are different from tall white men could claim rights in societies dominated by tall white men. They could hoist those white men on their own petard and say, you say that everyone is created equal. I am a man. I am a man. I right. belong.
1: This is the thing that we—that's we, the stuff that the net, the net was designed to promote too, or right. so we thought. Right.
0: Well, the, well, no. So, I, so I actually disagree with that about the net. So, I, I, in the last two books, I've traced this history that I'm—I'm I'm proud of having traced, but it, God, it was a lot of work. Um, <laughs> well, someone's got to do it. Someone's got to <laughs> do it. I actually think that what the net was meant to do was build out an engineered public sphere in which we could all be free and free-speaking individuals. It was sort of meant to produce Habermas. It was meant to produce a world where almost like it's a universal tavern where we can all get together and speak to one another on equal terms. And that vision of decentralized communication that fosters individual voice, mm-hmm. that's the vision Norbert Wiener, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson. And that was promoted. what I was even
1: taught by right. by both both my real professors and my weird right. countercultural right, right, right. professors that that uh, you become a, a high leverage point in a chaotic system. <laughs> right. You know that any mm-hmm. person can be the butterfly that flaps its wings.
0: Right. Well, um, I don't know if you've ever like pinned a butterfly. I used to collect them. Um, they go down pretty easy, <laughs> um, you know. Uh, no, I mean, you know, I, I, let me let me let me offer a different different view. Right. We're talking about butterflies. Would you want a butterfly to take out your appendix? I sure wouldn't. No. Where I'm going with this is that there are world. M- my idea of a utopia. I've said this before, but it's, it's true. My idea of a utopia is perversely a hospital. A hospital is an extraordinarily carefully regulated world in which people are held to very high standards, usually, um, and in which everyone has a role and they are working toward the common good. They're working to support one another. The mission is support. The mission is mutual support. And you know, loose social networks, they don't work very well. You need training, you need bureaucracy, you need knowledge to travel down through time in organized ways and to be available to new generations as old generations fade away. You need institutions. And you need institutions that don't traffic in personal difference per se, th- that are open to excellence. And then you need to, this is the backside, this is where it gets challenging, you need to be alert to cultural mechanisms for mischaracterizing excellence across difference. You know, so it becomes harder, if, if you have an all white, all male organization, it becomes harder to recognize excellence when it comes in a different shape in a package. Well, figure that out, work on that, but still keep the excellence.
1: It's interesting. I get uh, I have got these uh, message boards, Team Human message boards that oh, great. I'm not cool. spending enough time on. Cool. But the 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 constant refrain on these boards really is people wanting to say where do we meet? How do we do this? They, you know, because I do things about mm-hmm. about organic agriculture or alternative currencies mm-hmm. and so you know, fighting for social justice and all and they want a a a place, a thing, mm-hmm. a, but Part part of that, I think a large part of that is because they want to be with other people who are thinking this way and mm-hmm. what do we do? And it's not just that I don't know how to do that, which I don't. I'm not mm-hmm. a community leader, but somehow it doesn't seem like the right thing to be pushing for. In other words, what I'm thinking instead is can I just and is it okay to just consider and transmit values and let people then do what they do with them. Let people be changed in the way they interact with the systems and the institutions they're already involved with.
0: So, it's super interesting. I'm involved in two different groups and they're very different in character. You know, one is, um, we call it Mountain View Morale. It's in our town of Mountain View. And we meet monthly or so, and and mostly just to talk about the state of the political Mm -hmm. universe. And I, I I would characterize this as a resistance group in our little way. And our politics are all pretty similar. I also belong to a radical, all-affirming Methodist church called Glide, which is up in the city, and it's a famously all-accepting church. I mean, we have drag queens in the soprano section of our choir, and we're people of all colors, and that's great. But we're also a church that works very hard to reach out to other churches where more conservative parishioners attend. And we go and we listen, and we try to build connections across that. And that's very powerful and very important. I guess what I'm trying to say is that there are places to go where you will meet others of your kind and they're sort of very easy to find, particularly online. You can find other people like yourself. I actually think that's very easy. What's harder, I think, is finding places to talk seriously and on equal terms and warmly with others who are different than yourself um, and to, to do that civic work. Churches have often provided that role. So you know, the presumption was that if you entered a church, you had certain shared beliefs, and you know maybe you were really different, but at least you had those shared beliefs and that gave you ground for speaking. That's very difficult now. You know, right. in a much more secular society, that's very difficult. I would urge the folks that you're seeing on the message boards to visit a school board meeting. Ever been to one? You know, democracy is still here. The mm. institutions of democracy are still in place. Um, go to a zoning board meeting. Talk about the kinds of buildings that are getting built in your neighborhood. You know, talk about the school system. Work on a budget. Um, our Mountain View Morale Group has been very active in rent control for Mountain View. Get involved in a rent control campaign. Go canvassing take actual political action in an institutionalized setting, you'll begin to meet different people and you'll begin to to, to make the
1: kinds of change that stick. I know, I guess because it's like people think, and I understand it, that any of the existing things out there, well, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like this, but that's part of the point. That's of- exactly the point.
0: <laughs> the idea that I have to like everything, that's a toddler's state of mind. A toddler's state of mind is... Everything I put in my mouth must taste delicious. Mommy, 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 I'm really mad because you made me eat peas.
1: Right. I want this to be a place with organic fair trade coffee, with art on the walls, that has independent cinema, theater Mm -hmm. stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, Rudolf Steiner education, and progressive political people, but no religion except a little I Ching, no incense, but maybe some tarot. Right. (laughs) Well,
0: yeah, I mean... And and,
1: you're not going to find it. But I I see that. I think I kind of like that. You know, it it takes so much of the onus. I don't want to create another thing. There's enough things out there. Oh, there's
0: plenty of things out there. Yeah. There's plenty of things out there. And I, I, I think that's really important. I think that the main thing is to stop thinking of yourself as a consumer and start thinking of yourself as a citizen. This idea that I want experiences of the kind that I want and the world should provide those for me... That's the toddler appetite that you, that you develop and that we cultivate in a consumer society. And, right. and it's the fantasy that through consumption, the world should be made whole. If I can just eat those, le- if, I, if I eat the greens that were grown on the organic farm, I help the farmer and I'm happier and all that's true. But if you go to that farm, you might be still seeing some farm workers who aren't getting a full salary. And you can't address that issue by eating different lettuce you know, there's politics out there. I know Do politics. And that's the
1: thing that, and I know, uh, you know, we talked about Tim a couple of times, but for Timothy Leary, for all the critique, whenever I went to a party with him mm-hmm. or an opening or anything. You
0: have to pause and go back. You went
1: to a party with Timothy Leary? Oh, oh all the time. I was friends with him back then. Oh, yeah, that. yeah. And the, <laughs> no, really good friends that's in great. the 80s and 90s. Great. I became like the, the faux literary agent for his last book. Oh, that's so funny. Got him for 40,000 bucks from Harper so he could stay in his house in the great. last two great. years of his great. life. Um but um, he would always either talk to the musicians mm-hmm. or the uh, the wait people. The, the mm-hmm. how are you doing? Where are you from? What's going on? And it wasn't a performative political right. Like he was either the white people, or if there was someone really famous there, he'd go, right. you know, because he was he did like famous people. But uh, but that's the lesson, you know. And I love right. when I go to these um, you know supposedly progressive conferences and things, right. and everybody's a rich white person, and the only right. people of right. color in the room are just standing in white jackets right. serving. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? So I, here? Have,
0: I have a I have a deep fantasy, um, and, and it's from it's from the fifties and sixties. In the fifties and sixties, um, after World War II we had exchange programs with foreign countries, particularly foreign countries that used to have fascist governments. Like- AFS, right? Oh, AFS, uh, absolutely. Yeah. It was so Germany, um, Italy. You could go to school there, and they, they would come here to learn from you. I would like to see that same kind of exchange program going on inside the United States.
1: Could you imagine?
0: Oh, gosh, Yeah. Um, I would love to have um, some Southern Baptists um, from Mississippi up here in San Francisco, and I would love to spend some time at a Southern Baptist church in rural Mississippi. You know, I, I You know why there's so, so people much. are so
1: afraid of that now because everyone's my kid's not going to get in college, they're going to miss a semester, you know. Everybody's it's gotten so... Uh, my,
0: my greatest regret, my greatest regret for my college education, I went to Brown's, great school, I had an absolutely fabulous education. But Brown had a program um, with a historically black college called Tougaloo in the South and you could take a semester at tougaloo mm. And I wish I had done that. I really 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 wish I had done that. Um because I would like to experience what it means to be a minority in a in a faraway place. Um but um as my daughter likes to tell me, it is not the business of the t- students of tougaloo to teach you how to be a human being. You know, you have to figure that out for yourself and right. you can learn She's what? right. Oh, she's absolutely she, right. Know. I totally agree. I totally agree. No, that's absolutely right. And th- this is another one of the struggles, which is that if you start to talk with s- other folks who are different than yourself seriously, you start to find the things in yourself that run against your politics. Uh-huh. You start to find you know, little bits of racism and little bits of sexism and you know little bits of homophobia. And you're just like, what? I don't believe any of that stuff. And then right. you find that, some part of you does and where did that come from why is that there right and so you, you catch yourself not being the person that you want to be but that's just the, exactly the opportunity you know not only do you get to live in a better world where you do things collaboratively with others who are different than yourself but you get to love your whole self and learn about it and make it a better self and that in turn changes the world right but you make it you make it better on the inside by looking outside and that's not something the left is very good at yet
1: right well because we're still trying to define who am i what am i what is yeah
0: yeah and that's a legacy of the cold war that's the cold war that's esalen that's the 60s i'll make myself a better person and then I'll be a light unto the world.
1: That's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Hierarchy Get up of to needs self-actualization, precisely. and then I'm a bodhisattva. Right. right. In Once New York. I'm
0: actualized, society will be too. Yeah. Well, That works. I mean, what
1: could you? As could above, you, so below. As inside, so outside. Could you? Could you All imagine a better con-
0: ideology for a consumer society? <laughs> like seriously, right? You know,
1: but w- some people blame uh, Bateson and Mead for that.
0: Yeah, which they shouldn't. That's right. just naive. That's just naive. You know, Bateson and Mead I, have become real heroes for me.
1: Right, uh, so they're not what Adorno was complaining about. They're not creating the culture industry, no, the illusion by no of means, choice. No, by no
0: means, by no means, by no means. Oh, this is really important. You know, um, oh gosh, no. Um, Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson were as, cons- as as first off, as intellectually responsible as anybody I've seen. I spent two weeks in Margaret Mead's papers, okay? Um, I've read, I think, all of her published writing. darn near it. Um, She was not someone I was trained to love. I I am the child of a um, a feminist anthropologist um, who uh, was not a big fan of Margaret Mead, and I used to hear about it in the house. But I'll tell you, what you see in Margaret Mead is an intense effort, even when she's intellectually way off off the game, an intense effort to try to understand how societies work and to try to advocate for the greatest level of openness in societies, in people, the greatest level of acceptance of all the different ways that people come and are. And, and it's a beautiful vision. You see her trying really hard. I mean, imagine what it must have been like in the middle of the 20th century to go to Samoa to, to understand that you saw young women who were having lots of premarital sex, which you were told was very bad, but they looked quite happy and society seemed to work fine. And then to take that same information and go back to an American women's magazine, this is something she actually did, and write an article called What is a Date? Using your data from Samoa. That's very powerful in a society that was restricting the sexuality of women to go back as an authoritative woman, one of the few women in real intellectual power in America and say, here's this super healthy society. You might think they're primitive, but in this way, they're more advanced than we are. And girls, when you go on a date, remember the Samoans. That's quite a thing to say.
1: Right, and a dangerous thing to say.
0: Absolutely, and yet something she found a way to say, um, I, I can't remember the, which magazine it was, I can't remember if it was Mademoiselle or Red Book, something like that, you know, yet she found a way to say it, and to say it in a mainstream environment. Right. And that's, that's very powerful. So she was very, very open that way. Bateson, you know, his, his ideas about systems theory, again, while sometimes wrong-headed, as in the case of schizophrenia, opened whole vistas for the rest of us, particularly in therapy, particularly in family therapy, family systems therapy, that's something that his ideas really helped generate um, you know certainly in cybernetics, um, a lot of media theory um and and also just I think in a kind of just fundamental good
1: hearted human way of being but but together they had the but their their vision of the surround mm-hmm. which it whether it's the the museum exhibit where you get mm-hmm. to pick mm-hmm. your path through mm-hmm. it, and I love the way you documented that also resembles the shopping mall as oh, surrounded. and i could pick this store or that store this detergent strategy absolutely. or that one and adorno and the frankfurt group would say that that's the culture industry creating this illusion of choice just to enforce that we buy the same plastic or petroleum
0: so adorno and adorno is not the one who scares me the most adorno's adorno's by the time he gets to America, Adorno is such a traumatized person. I don't think he can actually think straight
1: anymore. The, the actually, they were running from the Nazis. These guys, to Oh, I, yeah. But,
0: but to, to the point where Adorno goes to to look at jazz and he sees um, jazz dancing as jack um, uh, jackboots on the floor. He thinks he's watching young. I know. I was always
1: confused about that. Uh, confused. Yeah. I, I just.
0: I, I think he's traumatized. I think he's literally hallucinating that this African American jazz form is somehow training for Nazism. That's that's just right. off the wall the the idea that i think is 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 both more right and harder to get out of is, is the idea of repressive desublimation and that's it's not horkheimer it's marcuse. Mm-hmm. when marcuse talks about repressive desublimation i feel trapped. so he's absolutely right that when for example you know you express yourself in punk rock and an A&R guy sees you do that and signs you to a label and the next thing you know you're blondie you know you have desublimated all of that stuff that was inside you—you've let it loose. You've let it be raw. You know, you've—you've you've been the Sex Pistols inside yourself, and then you're the Sex Pistols, and you're a brand. And suddenly, that same desublimation is itself repressive. You know, that's something that I think is very powerful. It's hard to get around. In America, we are so wedded to the idea that personal expression, that desublimation, that releasing the inner person, is the key to a political democracy that we cannot see the ways in which it opens us up to repression at all times. Brand me. Brand me, precisely, and and that's something the internet's taken extraordinary advantage of. You know, in a surveillance economy, personal expression opens the gate to being surveilled. It's what generates profits for Mark Zuckerberg. So this is why I think that our, our challenge right now is to re-embrace the boring in a very deep way. You know, city council meetings are stunningly dull. I don't know if you've been to any, I've been yeah. to a bunch.
1: I've been to the Board of Ed meetings. Exactly, you
0: know, you, you, you could melt into the floor. It's well, like, now
1: there's a lot of, I mean, they're also, I mean, so much anger and repressed rage in these right. things. Right, well, those are the places we need to be. Right. You know, we need we need to make our schools better.
0: You know, Eric Kleinenberg has this new book, right? You know, Palaces for the People, it talks about libraries, absolutely important, super, super critical build public spaces civic spaces where we can in fact become literate not only in books and schoolwork, but each other you know we can be there together and we can have an equal claim on that space those are those are the kinds of things that we need to do you know get with your library committee um that's 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 where the better future lies and if you've traveled a lot then you've had the good fortune of seeing countries that can do that You know, I lived in Germany for a while. Um, I've spent time in Finland and Denmark and Sweden. And I I hate to keep harping on the Scandinavian countries, but they do that piece well. Um, The French do food very well. The French government gives out lunch vouchers to make sure that the French restaurant industry stays strong. That's brilliant. That's cultural maintenance. That's fostering the civic good. What What have we done lately to foster the civic good? Tending Donald Trump's ego. That's not part of the process. Now, let me go a little bit farther and and be a little bit more provocative. We imagined when we hit Zuccotti Park in 2011 that we were taking civic action. And the nature of the civic action was, was the human microphone, right? Where the principle was this kind of classic left principle. It's very communalist. I shall speak my truth in the presence of others. We will meld our truths together in a single voice. We shall become the human microphone. Our truth shall be heard, and I shall be transformed in the telling of it. Right. I myself will be a different person. We shall be different people together, and we shall foreshadow the kind of good society that we want to, to make in the world. Well, okay, fine. While we were doing that, the Tea Party was taking Congress. That vision, that Tea Party vision, is remarkably anti-institutional. And because it was anti-institutional, it was ineffective. Yes, we, we won the brand war. We got to say, we are the 99%. That's great. Good for us. But the Tea Party took Congress. And I think we see where that's led us. Right. Our challenge is not to stop with that. First off, our challenge is not to believe that personal transformation is necessarily the source of political transformation. That's a leftist canard. It's been around for decades. It's one of our central tenets. It's a pillar of left theory. It's actually not entirely true. It, it is... I would argue, at least insufficient, at least. What we need to do is remember the power of the institutions that we on the left have criticized for so long. During the Vietnam War, I understand why bureaucracies looked so bad. I particularly understand why the same FBI that launched COINTELPRO to spy on college students should be unforgiven. But right now, the FBI is holding the line against a potentially authoritarian president. Those institutions are what sustain us. We've got to support them. Even the ones that we on the left have
1: for so long thought were the enemy. Right. And the the kind of personality and psychology that we're idealizing is almost uh, uh, anathema to the kinds of roles that we would have to play. I mean, I can't imagine almost anybody who listens to this show wanting to go run for office. You know, when you know yeah. what it's like there and yeah. what.
0: So, so I had an experience one time that was very, very powerful. Um, my wife and I were living in San Diego, and a good friend of ours was a warrant officer on uh, an aircraft carrier. And they had an open day, a, a kind of an open house day, where um, people who, who served on the aircraft carrier could invite friends and family to, to tour the carrier. And there were sailors at all their stations, and they would talk to you about what they did and show you the show you the mission. And uh, you know, keep in mind, I'm coming to this aircraft carrier after I've spent several years talking to traumatized combat vets. I'm radically anti-war, I still am. Uh, I can think of no greater crime in some ways than than the things we have to do on behalf of our nation sometimes. Um, And yet, I get on this aircraft carrier and the young men and women I meet from very diverse backgrounds all over the country, many impoverished, are some of the most capable, responsible, kind, civically oriented, pro-democratic people I've ever met. And I've just remembered that. I've just remembered that. These were the people who, during Vietnam, I was raised to attack. You know, I was raised to think the military is by definition the problem. Well, these people were not the problem. Now, the people who send them to war, the policies that send them to war, I have problems with all of it. But the young men and women I met on that aircraft carrier were the very
1: definition
0: of engaged, humane, responsible democratic citizens.
1: Do you think that the the organizational theory towards holacracy and every mm-hmm. worker having their own... Do you think that's part of what's made our our organizations and companies so much less coherent? Do you think that in some mm. ways the company man model of the worker and you go to work and you have your office and you listen to your boss, that in some ways that that that, that engenders a, a, a better functioning... Organization.
0: I think it varies enormously by type of organization. I just don't think you can you can call it right. Like know, some
1: artsy video game company, it's not sure. going to work. Where no. in the army, maybe it will. Right.
0: So I spent a lot of time inside Facebook recently. <laughs>
1: you know, that is that context back, and yeah. back. You know, yeah, context it's, keeps coming back. Yeah. Oh, it's got to,
0: but like I spent a lot of time inside Facebook, and and it's very clear that inside Facebook they want workers to bring their whole being to work. I, I don't think the leaders of Facebook can quite entirely forecast where they're going to make their next buck. And in that kind of a context, what you want is people very willing to um, fail fast, to try lots of stuff, to bring their best ideas, to see what works. And so you wanna create a working environment where people are whole as much as possible. By contrast, think of an aircraft carrier. You know, so one of the young men I met, I, I was most impressed by, um, his his job was to keep track of the fuel remaining in the fighters that the that the aircraft carrier had launched, mm. which as you might imagine, is a crucial function. <laughs> you know, you lose track of that that number. Everybody and they start going down. Yeah, they <laughs> start falling out of the sky. <laughs> he must have been, oh, I think 19. Um, now, you know, in that role, do I want him putting on his headphones and dancing to, you know, hip hop? Absolutely not. I want, him, I want him precisely alienated from parts of himself so that he can focus on the fuel load on those planes.
1: Same with my, my heart surgeon.
0: Exa- well, precisely my point. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I think hospitals are utopias. But, but yeah, so, so I think it varies enormously by the type of organization. Um, and I, I think that's the question. One of, the, one of my pet theories is a pocket theory. I have pocket theories. Po- a pocket theory is a theory for which I have no real evidence and have done no research but still believe. Mm-hmm. I call them lost boys.
1: Lost it's funny. Yeah. It's because I, I write my books in little note cards. <laughs> yeah, oh, great. And I you know write God, put just them like in you chapters. Were in high school. Then good for if there's you an just. idea I haven't really verified or I don't really know where it goes, I put it in another place called lost boys. Oh, and very it's like, good. Very someday good. Someday I'll develop it because Peter Pan like the yeah, little baby of it's ideas. Perfect. It's perfect. That's great. Yeah, that's great. That's <laughs> they great. they just can't grow up. <laughs> but it,
0: but it, it's clear that Maslow and his search for um, self actualization isn't a lead ideology. It's, it's, it's a deeply elite ideology and you're absolutely right, the, the counterculture won, but they won partly because they had already won. The people who headed back to the land in the 60s were predominantly white, predominantly middle and upper middle class. They were alive in a time when the economy was very strong so they could blow their family fortune on the commune and still get a job when they got back. Um, and when they got back, many of them assumed the positions of power um, that their race and class and economic standing would have predicted they would assume. They grew up. They grew up. <laughs> they absolutely grew up. And, and, and that's, that's, I think, a really important feature to remember. When they grew up, though, they brought with them the kind of whole person self-actualization, person-centered ideology of their tribe. Well, okay, that ideology of like flexible far traveling self actualizing individuals doesn't work very well for dairy farmers. So I grew up in a dairy town. You don't leave the farm. You leave the farm then you're not milking the cows. You're not milking the cows, you're not making milk and not right. only you're not making milk, but you're encouraging the cows, you know, udders to dry up. You We're, mean if you grew up on a farm like that, you don't have a gap year? You might have a gap year, but it's only <laughs> a gap year. Indy? Yeah, that's that's sort of my point. Yeah. Yeah, but you know you know, farming. I think is a good example. I, I didn't grow up on a farm at all, but I grew up around farms. And you know, if 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 you're a farmer, you have a lot of structured incentives in terms of the lives, the livestock you're tending, and the animals that you're tending, and the seasons that you have to work in, and the electricity bills, and all of it. You have a lot of incentives to not self-actualize in the ways that Californians might have in Esalen years ago. There's not a lot of time for group massage. Now there are new farmers out there, and there's you know right. hippie farmers out there, but but even they are working pretty hard. And my point is just that self actualization in the California manner is really only available to a certain class.
1: Um, right. But, so then, instead, you should go for um, if you are on the farm, and some of our listeners are, go for self-actualization in the flow. The chismic i can't even say his name. Uh, uh,
0: ch- yeah. Uh, you know, but you yeah. would,
1: you can self-actualize that yeah. in 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 how you get the maple syrup out or, of the or tree, or you may,
0: or you may not go for the immersive in the moment ecstasy that people on the left tell us is the sine qua non of of, of happiness. You know, on the left, we tend to believe in the power of ecstatic. Celebration, right? Rock and roll, um, the, the human microphone, ecstatic togetherness, in which we can disappear into ecstatic togetherness.
1: McCl- which McLuhan would call that the television age, you know? Yeah, and and people in the forties or the thirties and forties would have called it fascism. Um, that that's which is why maybe what's his name Ordona was right about the jazz and the people tapping.
0: No, you know, no Ordona was deeply wrong about jazz and people <laughs> tapping he, because he was not aware of the context. Um, where i was going with this was was that maybe you maybe the flow just sucks right maybe mucking out a stall just sucks and it is what it is maybe getting up to milk the cows every morning at 4 30 really sucks it's really hard you don't get to be in a flow state you've done it a million years it just you're just tired and you ache all over however you're building something you're sacrificing you see your kids flourishing maybe the pleasure isn't necessarily in a flow state of self-actualization Maybe it's in some of the things that folks on the right tend to tend to treasure. Sacrifice, the long view, um, deep belief in the community that you have. Maybe, you, maybe you're a deep believer in God and you, you, you have a religious organization. One of the things that I hold against my tribe, again, on the left, and I, I do count myself a member of the ecstasy-seeking tribe, um, is, a, is the way that they tend to disrespect other value systems, other ways of living a life. On which their own lives depend. That farmer who gets up every morning and milks his cows, that's the milk on my cereal in the morning. When I have my granola, it's his milk I'm pouring. I, I mean, know, and that's some of the uh,
1: some of the, that was the way I took Fight Club. Yeah, very good. You know? Very good. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. We're the people who are washing your dishes and yeah. fixing your car and Right
0: Right Right. And and we need to learn to value that and we need we we who are in the secular left. Who are capable of these kind of easy gatherings around ecstatic interconnection? You know, who do our protests by gathering in parks and camping for a while? You know, who um, go to who a are, Burning Man? Who go to Burning and... Man? Which you know, you know, I've done a bunch. Um, you know, we who do that might well step back and go to a Southern Baptist church. How are these people living? Why do they go to church? They're not fools. Why do they go? Where are the third spaces? Where are the civic spaces, the civic places where we can be in public with others who are different than ourselves and do things together and figure out what it is that we need to do together so that we are no longer so preoccupied with actualizing ourselves, but that we're preoccupied with actualizing one another in a way that produces an actually functioning democracy. Find the others. Find the others and do
1: stuff with them. Thank you, Fred. Oh,
0: thank you very much. Dr. Doug, this is the best.
1: (laughs) I know. Well, this is how I would spend my whole life. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being on Team Human. Thanks for joining Team Human. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon, you can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email Stephen at TeamHuman.fm. That's Stephen with a PH at TeamHuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peace.